0: You want to talk about walking into motherhood? You want to talk about walking into womanhood? That was like throwing gasoline over me and setting me on fire. That was like tearing my clothes off and leaving me out in the snow. It was horrific.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Motherhood Made Magic podcast. I am your host Anna Cusack and today we are speaking with Alicia Johnson. Hey guys. Hi, hey. Alicia is an Indigenous woman, academic and a mother. She's navigating colonization in the 21st century, challenging racial stereotypes and typecasts of what it means to be black, fat, proud, And a mummy. She has the most incredible social media profile, really creating this wonderful melting pot of everything from beauty and fashion to stories about finding a rental property as a single mom to some hard hitting social commentary about her experience as an Aboriginal woman in Australia right now. So, welcome to the podcast, Alicia. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad to be here. How does an Aboriginal girl from Broken Hill? end up a PhD political sciences candidate at Sydney University (laughs) oh
0: well it's been a hell of a ride and it's been I'm sure like most of you listening in real real seasons of my life if that makes sense and a lot of um, moments of uh, breakthrough I've been very lucky with the dedication of support of my parents to you know provide me opportunities to kind of break through these layers of of uh, oppression or poverty and um, I think that's reigns really true for a lot of first nations families and communities is we're often you know the first to do things you know the first to do this or the first to do that and that's a testament I guess to our families and our communities um dedication and support and love and nourishment you know I move around in a lot of spaces uh urban and rural uh, back and forth and just seeing my generation so many of us you know uh Really, being able to, I guess, enjoy uh, our parents' or older generation sacrifices is a beautiful thing. But in saying that, making sure that we're carrying on that fire and uh, creating better opportunities for the younger
1: generations coming up, too. You mentioned you were the first in your family. From my lurking, I know that you were a first school captain, you were a first to go to (laughs) university.
0: Yeah. Oh, my mom technically went to uni, but she went as a um, block student. So it's not exactly the same layout. But um, yeah, I believe I was one of the first to graduate as well, like as a mainstream student. Because those mainstream those mainstream calendars, they don't play muck around in uni. Uh, attendance at lectures and tutorials, it was a battle. Um, so yeah, I was one of the first to graduate, but I'm also, I believe, the first uh, postgraduate in my family, and now the first uh, PhD candidate in my both my mum and my father's side, so it's a real big honour.
1: It's so impressive, and as somebody who has done further study and lived with people who were doing PhDs and looked at it and gone like, "Oh no, no, that is <laughs> not for me." Massive respect. Massive Thank respect you. for that. There are things that I talk about on this podcast related to the the notion of the good mother what i want to know from your perspective is you are a aboriginal single mother of a child Mm -hmm. with additional needs Mm -hmm. in what ways does being outside of that mold of the perfect mother feel really sort of constrictive and restrictive and in what ways Mm -hmm. does it actually feel expansive for you to allow for full expression Mm -hmm. of yourself
0: uh, thank you for that incredible question, because I think you framed it really well um, oh, first by identifying the intersectionalities behind my motherhood. And I feel like all women, um, but especially those that belong to marginalized collectives, we have to start owning that. You know, like if you have trauma or you've been diagnosed with a medical condition or even, I guess, a psychological one, you know, recognizing that those intersectionalities um, are going to impact um, your mothering or your identity as a person so thank you for that because I feel like yet again with that you know the the, the, the name or that concept of being a mother it kind of just you know erases that it's an erasure of our identities and our experiences so thank you for that and um, for me though as an aboriginal person in this country my whole life my whole identity you know the most basic things like brushing your hair or you know when you're a little kid you fill out forms and you know you write down what color is your eyes and then you color it in um or you're you know even coloring in coloring in books and everyone else is you know leaving it bare and they're not coloring in the skin they're leaving it white the color of the paper but we're coloring them in brown to you know reflect our identities i've always been reminded that I'm different and not different is in oh everybody has different difference you know this is something to celebrate difference in a negative way okay and again speaking to marginalization coming from a racial group that has had had marginalization for the last 200 and something years. Which is completely normalized in our society. So that's the other thing that gets me with being Aboriginal in this country is the racial marginalization, persecution, and general racism that a lot of other people of colour put up with, but the normalization of it as well. So recognizing that very young and as an adolescent and then as a woman, you know, coming into dating and my, you know, sexuality or, you know, wanting to meet new people or men and all of that type of world, becoming safe in those spaces, I realized that might have race was an undertone. I realised the fact that I was Aboriginal impacted sexual partners or their capacity to uh, date me, if that makes sense. So. I've hit that on very early before I became a mother. And I guess I was very lucky in that sense. Um, so I was 23 when I had my daughter. Um, and in Aboriginal, for a lot of Aboriginal people, that's, you know, uh, not young. Uh, that's normal or, or older to have a child in Western society. As we know, the average birthing age is a lot different to that of First Nation. So by 23, I was grown. I knew who I was. I was a woman in my own right and a, and a proud one at that. But in saying that, my understanding of my identity impacted my mothering. I knew that it wasn't going to be, oh, you're a mum now, so you're not going to be an abbo, or you're a mum now, so you're not going to be a coon or a drunk or a nigga, it's going to be different now because you're going to be a mum so you're going to be a shit mum you're going to be a child abuser you're going to have domestic violence you're going to neglect your children your children aren't going to school your children you know are petrol sniffers so I knew that it'd highlight a whole new uh, racial domain that I was not embedded in before and that's exactly what it's done so I've been lucky enough to pick up the toolkit throughout my life as an Aboriginal person, as an Aboriginal person that grew up Aboriginal as well and grew up in Aboriginal community to help me use those toolkits as the mum. But I'm telling you, they
1: ain't easy. You say lucky enough to have that toolkit. That's a toolkit mm. no one should need to have. That's
0: it. The toolkit no one should have to have it. My daughter's going to school next year and I'm literally having a breakdown about it because you better get ready. She'll be not going to school with her school bag. She'll be going to school with her toolbox, getting ready to develop those tools. And it's the most foreboding feeling. Anyone listening to this podcast, it is chilling my blood to my bones because it's not a matter if my child's going to be a a boom or a nigger or an abo or anything else, petrol sniffer. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And that is also a part of my mothering experience giving birth to an Aboriginal child is the cycle and understanding that, um, you know, I have to do what my parents did, just make her proud, make her strong.
1: And when she comes home, drop that toolbox and, you know, get in here and have some loving. In a lot of the mainstream kind of supportive and attachment parenting philosophies, a lot of people are talking about having that reattachment and reconnection when children get home and being a safe place for them Mm. and and whatever else and in circumstances like you're describing alicia it's as if you know that the bad stuff is going to happen so you're preparing for that ahead of time whereas if you're not part of a group that's been Mm. marginalized and persecuted it kind of hits you in the face and you go like oh how do I deal with this like what do I do mm-hmm. now that my child's being bullied rather than the expectation of my child is going to be bullied how am I going to make my connection with them their self-esteem as good as it can be mm-hmm. ahead of time
0: 100 percent. that's exactly what it is
1: the examples that you gave you know an abo and a petrol sniffer and all those horrible mm-hmm. things are they things you copped pretty young
0: Yeah, so this is probably one of the hardest things. And if anyone's following me on Instagram, you would notice I don't delve into it. And that's just simply because of a trauma. So me and my sister went to school in a rural town, a town that was very much founded on racist ideologies, you know, had uh, uh, race divisions all the way up, even in my father's generation, there was, you know, norms and ramifications of blacks only and whites only. That was during my grandfather's time. And again, those ideologies uh, or norms uh, persisted into my dad's generation. So. That's a lot of things that people don't know about these rural and remote towns is the racism that is, you know, again, so normalized, but the whole town kind of participates in it. And that's exacerbated because a majority of these towns, the majority of people within them are white people or Anglo-Saxons, whatever you want to call them, and Aboriginal people. So you can imagine that tension for over the last 200 and something years and bubbling up in school systems and old school systems that, you know, my school was there, probably one of the earliest schools in the town and, you know, they, those those attitudes persist and they're only um, amplified by lack of resource, lack of re-education, lack of funding by the Australian government as well, investment into our rural and remote com- uh, towns and, most importantly, the most vulnerable collectives that live within them, such as First Nations people as well.
1: You touched on re-education there. Re-education mm-hmm. is something that I'm delving into for myself to understand my mm-hmm. own my own history, what my Mm. family have participated in in generations not that long ago Mm. and how that continues to affect my experience and the experiences of the families that I am living alongside and interacting with. How in your work are you giving voice to the re-education that needs to happen? What are you creating Mm. in this space?
0: Exactly like you said, I've had to do re-education of my own identity. So the notion of re-education, guys, is... It's not education because we have to undo what we've learned and we have to relearn. So that um, on a time scale or on a effort or on a um, capacity scale takes more work. So the notion of everything that I've learned has to go out the window. So I have to unpack that. I have to forget that. I have to look at the ways that my misinformation or miseducation has impacted my life because I've made decisions. We've all made decisions on what we were taught at school, what we were taught by our parents, what we've been taught by ourselves society so you have to own that first of all you have to recognize that you've done that and then you have to strip that away you have to take that infrastructure away and then you have to get ready to make new infrastructure you have to be ready to make new changes and new attitudes and beliefs and decisions in your everyday life so that's why I like to use and I love to incorporate that in anything I do this notion of re-education because you're not going to come over here and you know have a little piece of pie and sit down and have a yarn no we need to recognize what you've done how you've contributed to maintaining racial power dynamics, which position white people as superior and first nations people as inferior. How have you maintained that? How have you contributed to that? And also the smallest things like beauty standards or the smallest things like narratives of protecting other representations of femininity or womanhood over others, you know, cause that's another impact. Um, and I'm sure many of listeners today, but what I like to delve into is beauty standards and the way that, you know, if we aren't recognizing other manifestations and representations of beauty we're therefore contributing to their marginalization if that makes sense so re-education is a really really big area of my work and understanding that to embark on a you know re-educational journey is not the same as an educational one because we've got a lot of work to undo
1: yeah education is about learning new content re-education is about deconstructing yourself to make space for new ways of of seeing and of being, I feel. It's a really good explanation you've just given, Alicia. Thank you. I've been reading some of your work around the devaluation of Indigenous knowledges, particularly around the birth industry Mm. and maternity care systems in this country. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit on that?
0: My introduction to birthing was embarking on it. And I think for a lot of marginalised collectives, so collectives that are living above the poverty line or underneath it, collectives that aren't able to get basic health care, collectives that are because of their skin colour or aren't able to get, you know, restaurant service or adequate supports when in need, I was going into my birthing experience aware of my positioning like i said I, i'm not going to have a great birthing experience come on if i can't even go to coles um and pick up a chicken and some bread rolls it's not going to happen you know um and it, guys if you ever hear me crack a joke in between talking about something serious please feel free to have a giggle this is my nature of connected uh, connectivity connecting me to you on a humanistic level you know and most importantly my humor gets me through it so if, if i'm cracking a joke best best belief please laugh with me because i need it um comedic relief if i can't get basic support or respect the coals. I'm not about to go into a hospital and give birth and be vulnerable and exposed um, and get great care. It just doesn't happen. I had become uh, introduced to the notion of uh, Indigenous birthing uh, ideologies or ways of being or knowledges as a result of not having access to it but also having access to it. So it was this really weird duality. And I believe that's the impact of colonization where you have a taste of it and you just want so much more like my culture, uh, like my, you know, way I raised my daughter, the way I base my sense on it, my identity and a base a sense of a matriarchy. It's a taste of it. And that taste is ancestral, it's sacred, and it's inspiring. So I had a taste of it with the involvement of my mother and my daughter in my birthing. It was just them two uh, and my aunt aunties all came around later, but it was just this sense of sacred bonding between women and the importance of trusting each other, if that makes sense. And that is a very large component of uh, Indigenous birthing is female only and trust. So understanding that You are not alone, understanding that, you know, your thoughts and opinions matter. You can voice them whenever you want. If it's not a nurse, it was to my sister, it was to my mother and my mum and my sister were voicing their concerns or their thoughts to each other. So it was a sense of uh, connectivity. They were embarking on this journey. They were not giving birth to my daughter, but they were uh, embarking on this journey in every single sense of the word. And that's uh, the medical. So, you know, keeping up to date with, you know, my heart rate, my pain, the contractions, all of that. But they were also staying track with me. How was I feeling? Was I tired? Uh, did I want to move? Did I want to not be touched? You know, what did Alicia want in that moment, moving beyond what the medical indicators wanted or what the nurses were doing? And this isn't a personal attack on nurses at all. You know, this is their, what they're trying to do. It's it's normal in Western society to focus on the ops rather than how that woman's feeling in that moment. So That experience of connecting to my mother and my sister really inspired me to look and explore other areas around Indigenous birthing. And most importantly, that clash of culture in my birthing suite of the nurses. And also seeing them, though, um, around the fourth or the fifth hour, understanding that I wasn't speaking to them directly. I would speak to my mum and my sister, or my sister, and they would speak to the nurses. So that communication between me and the medical staff, in that sense, just kind of dissipated because I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to you know do that and um, the emotional labor that goes into that and also another thing is uh, Indigenous communication styles so we can communicate things differently body language eyesight uh, hand movements or broken English as well we speak a lot of us do um, so it was small things like that being able to communicate my wants and needs to my mother and my sister in a way that they'd be able to do and pretty much act like a translator in that moment and I think that's Again, a really big aspect of Indigenous birthing is understanding that we need interpreters, we need people to communicate our wants and needs to the nursing staff, do that in a way that is culturally safe, but again, prioritising the needs of me and not the needs of what the nurses want.
1: Yeah, there's so much to be said for culturally appropriate, safe Mm. care, so much to be said for the role of family and I think in Western mainstream culture, mm. it's more likely that birthing women and partners are going to look to someone professional like a doula mm. rather than the family members to provide that maternal bonds or, or even a lot of the time doulas will say things like they were engaged because not because they knew better but because they were the person in the room that believed the woman could do it. Mm. And when there's been so many generations of disbelieving that mm-hmm. it can be done it. then it 100%. can be hard for mothers sisters whoever to step into mm-hmm. that role but it sounds like from what you're saying they just just had the and belief in the you thing,
0: and and I love that because I've I've been learning about the role of doulas and you know looking at the uh, understanding of what their role and the necessity of them let's really reflect that like doulas are needed in our western society like you said mothers and sisters and aunties in the eurocentric society or ways of being a uh, uh, left feeling incapacitated or don't have that skill set to do that so these roles are really important but also understand for Indigenous people we don't have doulas our mums are doulas our aunties are doulas my sister who had never given birth a day in her life became my doula because that sense of uh, belief uh, is essential in our matriarchy as women living in this, on this continent for the last 80,000 years, but also surviving this brutal form of, of colonization. But another point I wanted to make, because I went to a really uh, large hospital in the inner city and they had a lot of different races come through. And what I did say was, oh, I'm going to have people coming in and out. And they said, no problem. We've had Indigenous uh, women give birth here before. This was an Aboriginal worker showing me around the hospital. We've had Aboriginal women here, but also other cultures as well. You know, it's like uh, families that belong to the Pacifica or the Maori. They also have a lot of family members coming in, and even more so, I think that a lot of Aboriginal. They actually fill the room during these experience, uh, these birthing experiences, and that lack of recognition of other cultures and other ways of being again really amplifies the limitations of this Eurocentric or this white or this Western ways of being in these hospitals. And these hospitals accommodate to these families it's not like this is normal like this is a part of our protocol what that mother needs what that family needs is you know normal it's static but it's accommodation and for me that is horrendous that to have someone's family there large family in any capacity in a room is like oh a pat on the shoulder for our hospitals no it's not a pat on the shoulder they're Australian citizens they should have access and the right to have as many people obviously within means in that space in that room and especially during contractions you know how lengthy that is having people in the room is so important so i think also reflecting on a multicultural level but also recognize when australia does do something like you know allow you to have your family members in there or accommodates you it's almost like okay we're doing a good job no you're not because those attitudes of uncomfort those attitudes of there's too many people in here still persist
1: yeah it's the this isn't what we usually do but we'll just make it okay for you because you're different (laughs) no right it. That's yeah and then 100%. we'll put ourselves up for a, a, an inclusivity award thank you it's so
0: true because we let you know 10 family members of, of a tongan lady you know come into the room like god sense now or you've done your job at, you know multiculturalism put up with it like you just bit your tongue like you didn't understand why they're doing it you didn't understand this has been an ancient practice for their people for hundreds and thousands of years this is their coming of womanhood for them you don't recognize that you're just kind of like oh well This is how they are they have really big families you know so it's just those attitudes to me and again with the re-education understanding that in allyship that you can't just do it on the surface level you can't just recognize the aboriginal flag or recognize our inhabitancy here pre-colonization you have to recognize it embed that in your everyday life you know so when you are at australia day or you are at a, a patriotic event recognize that that is not involving indigenous people's patriotism of this country because we have it and ours is very very old a lot older
1: my math isn't great but I'm thinking like (laughs) thousands and thousands and thousands of times older
0: yeah, definitely. I read something online that Australian, so Australia, the oldest generation you can be in this country is sixth generation, I believe, six or eighth generation, but Aboriginal people 80, 8,000 generations. So we've been here for 8,000 generations in comparison to like, I think the max is six or eight if you came over in the first fleet. That's some interesting facts for you guys. And I believe that was from the um, Australian Museum.
1: And you can't see what Elise is doing, but each time she says Australia, she's making little inverted commas with her hands. Yeah, sorry, guys. (laughs) I'm rolling my eyes. (laughs) I think we can hear that bit in your voice. Yeah. So you have birthed your daughter, your mum and your sister are there. How does the next bit play out? And how does that turn into then the Midnight Mothers project? Mm.
0: So again, guys, as you can imagine, um, talking about trauma is really hard and uh, for a lot of first nations people it's not that we internalize it we just handle things differently like grief even display of of a lot of different emotions and as a result of colonization as well and the fact that it's forever an experience as i just mentioned with my daughter and working through my own trauma and my childhood trauma um preparation for her embarking on this journey i will discuss it loosely but i'm not going to get into minor detail guys but if you can keep your hearts and your minds open as I'm telling this story to be able to imagine or empathize with this experience. But I, gave birth to my daughter, and the next day I was ready to go. I was uh, had a few stitches. I was breastfeeding. My daughter 100% latched on at birth. Everything was working. I was moving around. I was eating. I was drinking water. Everything was fine. I did a urine test, so um, I was able to pee, but not pee too much. I was able to stand up. wasn't falling. I had a shower, washed myself. I believe I had two showers. I was ready to go. And most importantly, the woman I was sharing a room with had the curtains shut. She wasn't coping well. Her baby was crying a lot. She was her second child, but this poor lady was just not in the right mindset. And this was impacting me really badly, feeling that energy um, and her, her sadness and her grief almost. And her realization now, she was a mum of two. So that was really impacting me. And my mum wasn't also able to stay. And at this point, there was no way in hell I'm sleeping in this hospital with this baby. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I was just, no way it was happening. I was staying in this hospital without my mother. So I was telling the uh, nurse, uh, I wanna see a doctor, I wanna see a doctor, I wanna see a doctor. Oh, one hour, two hour, three hour, four hour, five hour. The the clock was going. We knew the doctor was making his way around all the other units. And we thought this man's gonna leave soon. And in the afternoons, there's no doctors on. So I knew I had to see him. I was like, this has to happen. I looked at her. I was holding my daughter. I said, "I need to see a doctor now. I want to go home. I don't want to stay here." And uh, the Aboriginal coordinator in the unit had come up and saw me too earlier in the day, and she let me know, "Oh, well, since you're peeing, since she's latched on, since you don't have any, you know, medical requirements, it was a normal birth. She's normal. You're able to go. Just let the nurse know. I'll check in." And again, it just shows the role of the Aboriginal. Work. I was in these hospitals. They're so flat out. Uh, they're giving literally there why women give birth. Literally there why women are have given birth. Literally there why women are coming into the hospital for tours. So this woman was out. I knew she wasn't going to be able to come and advocate. So I had to do it my damn self. So I looked at this nurse and I said, "I'm going home. I want to go home. I need a doctor now. I've waited here for four hours, five hours. I want to go." She looked at me. You can leave this hospital, but your baby's staying. You can leave this hospital, but your baby is property of this hospital. You can leave, but she stays. My mother was there. I was there. My mom looked at me. I looked at her. Now, my mom is like a firecracker. You guys see the fire. You see the, the advocacy and standing up for myself. I got that from my mum. But in that moment, it's like my mom passed the baton onto me. It was my time now to fight for my daughter. My mother was not going to do it. And You want to talk about walking into motherhood? You want to talk about walking into womanhood? That was like throwing gasoline over me and setting me on fire. That was like tearing my clothes off and leaving me out in the snow. It was horrific. The woman saying that to me, but what was not, what was most important was it initiated fight or flight inside of me. So I looked at my mum, I handed my baby to her. My mom went in the hallway and I could just remember hearing my daughter cooing in the hallway, you know, it echoes off everything. So I heard her little, little noises and my mom singing to her. And I got up out of that bed. I swung my legs off that hospital bed and I stood up and I looked at the nurse face to face and she would have been five foot three Guys, I'm six foot so you can imagine and as I stood up this woman's eyesight literally looked from the bed up 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 so she's looking up at me and I'm looking down at her I said in the most clearest voice in the most calmest voice get me a doctor I'm going home she ran off, that doctor was there in 15 minutes flat. Oh, yes, you're right, Miss Johnson. Yep, Oh, you've passed, you right. Oh, yep, you know, you've got your stitches. This is the aftercare. Here's some lavender, lavender oil and water. It helps you, you know, with the antiseptic. If you have any issues, oh, the nurse will be over there tomorrow to help you with your breastfeeding. Nope, you're ready to go. Pack your bags, Corn. out of there. But what that woman said to me, guys, is not reflective of her age. It's not reflective of where the location was. It's not reflective of her personal beliefs and attitudes towards Aboriginal people. This is reflective of the institution that she is embedded in. This is reflective of our country. This is not personal. She doesn't know me from a bar of soap. This is a reflection of the attitudes that persist in regards to Aboriginal women and our children. They are still viewed as possession or belonging to this welfare state to this government and most importantly our autonomy we do not have my decision-making capacity i i have no say i have no right it was the doctor's authority to sign me off and rightfully so but in saying that i have the right to initiate that decision-making capacity on his behalf as well and the same would persist if I wanted to stay if I wanted to stay in that hospital if I was not coping and I needed an extra night that is my decision to make that as well and provide that to the doctor as a case as justification as being a Australian citizen Um, but my story guys is only scratching the surface this is unfortunately nothing compared to what other first nations women experience but It's taken me five years to talk about this publicly. Many people are in disbelief. What was the background? Why did this, why did that? People are in disbelief. But like I said, we uh, as Indigenous women, these stories are horrific. These stories are plentiful. And mine, unfortunately, only scratches the surface. But I will use it as, again, a toolkit or a tool to open doors and passages and call for recognition of what women are enduring. And guys, I gave birth five years ago. That was 2016. Okay, I was 23 years of age. I knew what I wanted. I knew who I was. I knew how to speak. I knew um, how to take care of my child, regardless of my age. But again, ageism within Australia, uh, looking at someone at a specific age, race and background and making decisions and skin colour and making decisions around what's best for them.
1: On your platform recently, you've been having some discussions around skin colour as separate from race, as separate from Aboriginality. Mm -hmm. Talking about proximity to whiteness mm-hmm. I think that's something that if people are interested in diving into more it would be something mm-hmm. to follow you rather than try and encapsulate it in this mm. tiny little nutshell yeah is any of that included in the four-week midnight mothers program that, that you're creating
0: so, it's um, such an amazing question. So, the four week program is a really, it is almost proximity to whiteness or whiteness in a sense because it's a cross cultural analysis of. Uh, indigenous birthing ideologies and contrasting that against white mainstream. Um, I had a really good conversation with my sister again, who's kind of a really big pillar in my life. And she said, Alicia, you need to educate these women on what they're enduring, educating these women on the way you're being treated, if you're white or if you're anything above, because everything connects back to these white ideologies, these white views, this white devalueship of women and our capacity. But that's only exacerbated when you add race into that. It's only exacerbated when you add you know, drug or substance abuse or mental health into these components. So understanding that these undercurrents during the 18th and the 19th century of what a woman could do uh, during uh, her pregnancy and childbirth still persist today. And we're seeing that in the uh, clinical approach to women. We're seeing that into the role and power play between mother or family members are on the bottom and then mother, nurse and doctor. So it's a a hierarchy of power around uh, decision making and capacity in relation to your birthing uh, birthing journey and a lot of people they you know are birthing at home now to evade that but what's more important is if you have that privilege to be able to give birth at home if you have the privilege to be able to give birth in a private hospital where you're paying so you can have more of a say but for so many of us isn't so understanding the the power behind the alternative which is giving birth at home or a private hospital or an alternative birthing facility but also understand for the rest of us that can't afford it what we're left with behind because evading the problem is not uh, working through it or recognizing it or calling for change evading the problem can unfortunately just be evading the problem
1: I keep asking you about this but I've signed up for the course so I kind of want (laughs) to know it's four weeks (laughs) it's four weeks Mm -hmm. What am I going to unlearn and relearn during this time? So
0: I have said, guys, this is my biggest body of work yet. I have interviews from Indigenous women that will be opening each module. So you're going to be hearing the voices of an Aboriginal person, their thoughts and opinion before you do anything. And that in itself is re-education because I don't want to position myself on a pedestal or a position of authority or, you know, a a leader in that that makes sense. Rather, I want to bring sister girls with me and challenge your learning uh, ways of being, I'm not hitting you with a documentary I'm not hitting you with a journal article or an academic or a specialist I'm hitting you with a black mother because we are the specialists in our narratives and unpacking that through a cross-cultural lens so what our women are touching on such as lack of care or sympathy or compassion is what we're all enduring as women talking about the privatization so the fact that we're shuffled in and shuffled out you know that is talking about the privatization like I touched on earlier if you want to stay longer in the hospital with your baby you're not able to they're told oh you can only stay here for a maximum of you know however many nights and if you have had a cesarean you can you can only stay a maximum of these many nights depending on your healing journey we're not looking at the horror that goes behind having a cesarean and for many women a unplanned one they're not talking about the psychological distress or the impacts behind that and the ramifications that that's going to have on a woman's capacity to mother so That's what we're exploring in uh, Midnight Mothers is looking at the privatisation, which affects us all, the uh, Eurocentric ideals of pregnancy and birth that affect us all. But then we're doing that through the lens as me, as a narrator, as a First Nations woman in order to reflect an alternative way of being and knowledges and ancient ones at that, but also to call for you to recognise your own privilege in your re-education.
1: Mm, thank you i can't wait thank
0: you i'm so excited
1: is there anything else that you would like to talk about
0: yeah i want to thank you for having me come along and women or even men or you know non-gender binary folk that are tuning in this grassroots initiatives and taking initiative as well to your, your re-education and learning and other voices rather than what we're provided by the mainstream is so important and if it's accessing a podcast like this or an Instagram page or a plethora of others really understand that we're the first generation that's being able to do so uh you know the generations before us weren't able to have this sense of connectivity but most importantly access a plethora of resources with people that are using their own lived experiences and journey and passion to speak and I think that's really important in a society where everything is motivated by power and monetary gain uh connecting like this in community on a grassroots level is so important and that's irregardless of your economic background your race or your upbringing uh connecting like this in community that is online is is so important
1: it's such an exciting thing to have this capacity to to connect so true
0: and like you and I when we were growing up this just did not exist as young people we weren't able to yarn to other young people in another state or you know you had messenger but we weren't able to access these portals that our phones provide and and connect and and use that as a resource if that makes sense
1: yeah Um, and we want to be using them for tools for good not tools for evil and teaching our children how to do that too (laughs) It's so true. That's going to be a whole other podcast episode. That's the the whole next part of having the good as parents, but having the responsibility of making that okay and safe for our children too. Mm, It's it's so true. (laughs)
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you so much, Alicia. I will see you uh, for the start of your course, which starts on the 28th. So it's only a few days after this podcast is released where can we get a hold of you i know you actually you host a couple of different podcasts and you have different businesses and stuff where's the best place to get a hold of you so guys um
0: just pretty and pretty much hit me up on my instagram so eighty nine eighty three aj uh the link for the workshop or the program is in my bio but if you have any questions you know hit me in my dms a lot of people have asked like oh we're really busy now is it kind of learn as you As you can, that's exactly what it is. All of the resources will be chucked into a module. Uh, We will be having weekly Zooms, so if you can make it uh, every Friday at one PM, but if you're unable to make them, that's fine. The audio will be recorded. You'll be able to listen in when you want. And these resources, guys, it was really important to me for you guys to be able to download it and keep it and store it. So that's a big thing that I'm promoting with my content Um, and with your obviously financial support is all these resources. You can you know download them and save them, keep them on your desktop if you need any you know motivation or if you need any you know to check back in any resource you'll have this uh, program Midnight Mothers to access when you need to and that was really important for me was that sense of of ownership over this program and ownership of your re-education.
1: And to be engaging in something that you know is 100% Aboriginal created, Aboriginal owned. That's it. That's a really important feature when we're looking at our unlearning and and relearning as well. So thank you for creating it. Thank you for being on this podcast with me. Bye. Thanks for listening. I hope you love this episode as much as I loved recording it. If you wish, you can subscribe and leave a five-star rating on your podcast platform. And if you love my work, please be sure to follow along with me on social media at Anna Cusack Postpartum on Instagram and Facebook and grab my book from slash book. Until next time, bye.